Good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is found on page 491 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that Bible. So if you could turn to Psalm 80 on page 491. I'll read that and you can follow along. It's a good compliment to our sermon text this morning in Isaiah 27. Hopefully you'll see some of those connections. Um, Just a little bit of orientation. Uh, Imagine yourself as an Israelite. This is after the Exodus. They've already been brought out of Egypt a long time before. And at the time of the writing, the people of God are really struggling and they need a new deliverance. And so they're looking back to the time when God delivered them out of Egypt and Asaph is saying, do it again. So that's the context here for Psalm 80 in, in brief. So if you would, wouldn't mind standing in honor of God's word, you can follow along as I read Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so um, over the last few weeks, we've had um, some different speakers and um, some different themes that we've considered. I had originally planned on finishing Isaiah 27, which is kind of the the second major block in Isaiah. Um, Originally planned to finish that before leaving for vacation, but chapters 26 and 27, there's just too much 
um, in there for one message. So we're finishing up the last chapter of this block in Isaiah as we walk through the book of Isaiah um, chunk by chunk here. Finish up that last chapter um, this morning, chapter 27. And then we're going to have a summer series called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. Okay, I think that oftentimes Christians live... Um, maybe if the Holy Spirit just left, maybe none of us would notice. Or maybe not many of us would notice. Um, are we really Trinitarian? Do we really believe in God, the Holy Spirit? So the person of the Spirit, His work, what does the Spirit do? What's His mission? The gifts of the Spirit, are we using them? And then what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit to use the language of Galatians 5.25? Uh, the book of the month is also intended to go along with it. It's called Forgotten God by Francis Chan, so I encourage you to pick that up. Um, you can grab it at the, at the welcome desk. So that's what's coming um, in, the, in the summer, and then we'll get back to Isaiah in the fall, Lord willing. Okay. So as we head in here to Isaiah 27, do you think that you would ever risk your life to get some news? Now, some of you, any self-admitting like, news junkies out there? You're not going to raise your hand. Thank you, Rick. I at least see one hand. Okay. Yeah. All right. So even to a news junkie, you might not think, well, I, I, I like the news. I need my news, but not that bad. I'm not going to risk my life for it. Um, sounds pretty strange to even say it, whether it's you know, I don't know what your news fix is, 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock, or if it's some online thing. Um, so, second question, how many of you read the book or saw the movie Unbroken? Okay, a few more. That's good. At least there's no news junkies except one, but um, at least a few of you have read the book or seen the movie, which the book is actually more cinematic than the movie. Um, but it's about a guy named Louis Zamperini, and uh, he was shot down, actually, yeah, I think it was shot down, or the plane just went down, it was kind of a bad plane, um, out to sea with some, some buddies, um, two others, are we making a phone call? Anyway, um, just wait to see who answers, um, and one of them died, and then, you know, after all these days, they finally get picked up by a Japanese boat, and so they're taken off to... Uh, POW camp in Japan. So a lot of the book takes place in a POW camp or in several POW camps in Japan. And those guys, their desire for news, news of the war effort was so strong that they would risk their safety and even their lives for news. So let me just read you a little quote from the book. After food, what every man wanted most was war news. The Japanese sealed their camps from outside information and went to some lengths to convince their captives of allied annihilation, first by trumpeting Japanese victories and later when victories stopped coming by inventing stories of allied losses and ridiculously implausible Japanese feats. New captives were fonts of information and no sooner had they arrived and their minds were picked clean, the news tapping its way down the cell blocks in minutes. Newspapers rarely appeared, but when one did, stealing it became a camp-wide obsession. Rations were sometimes delivered to camp wrapped in newspapers, and the two kitchen laborers would quietly pocket them. The boldest men even managed to pinch papers from the interrogation room as they were being questioned. 
Once stolen, the papers made elaborate secret journeys, passed hand-to-hand until they reached the translators, Harris, Fitzgerald, and Mayer. As translations were done, lookouts stood by, pretending to tie their shoes or adjust their belts. When guards neared, warnings were issued, and the papers vanished, soon to be put to their final use. You can imagine what that is. Um, So there also is a, a story a little bit later on where... You know, the Japanese papers, as it said, would sometimes put their spin on how the war was going, but sometimes they would have war maps on those papers giving information about American movements, and so those maps were invaluable to the prisoners. And Louis Zamperini risked his life one day to snatch a paper from the desk of one of the guards that they called the quack. The reason why they called him the quack is because he was just so sadistically deranged. I mean, it's, it's like stomach-turning, some of the things this guy did. Um, so he did that. The guy that he gave it to copied the map. He had kind of a photographic memory, so he saw it, and he ran it back and put it back on the desk before they discovered it. He etched out this map on a piece of toilet paper or something, and he was discovered. And the quack beat that guy sadistically for 45 minutes. It took the, took the guy literally months to get back to normal. So... Why do I tell you all that? <laughs> because sometimes news is the most valuable thing in the world. It can make all the difference. It, it may not seem, most times to us, if we were to think about it, if the question was posed, it may not seem that news is as practically helpful as tips as advice, like five tips for this or three secrets to that, that, the kind of stuff that fills the new, you know, supermarket racks. But news can make all the difference. And just think about the Boston Marathon bombing, life in the city after that had taken place before they had taken care of both of those brothers, killed the one, captured the second one. Do you think some of those Bostonians lived in fear, although the second guy was still at large? Do you think they felt some relief when the news came, we have the second criminal in custody? Okay? How about if you were stressing about finances and then news came that you were in the will of your great aunt Ethel? I mean, I can go on, but you get the point. Okay? So by the end of our study of Isaiah 27, I think you'll see this truth, this news truth played out in the Christian life. So since it's been a few weeks, so hold that thought. Since it's been a few weeks, a little brief review of of where we are. Um, Series of Isaiah's called God Saves, like you see on the screen here. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. And that's what the book is all about. So the first 12 chapters are the, the first major chunk. God reveals his judging, saving intentions to his people, Judah and Israel, primarily Judah, southern kingdom, okay? The first five chapters of the book show how bad the situation was, the rebellion and idolatry that characterized God's people. They were supposed to be his people, but they had rebelled against him. Chapter 6 is that call of Isaiah. Remember, he's in the temple. He sees the vision, the king on the throne. And what happens to Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. And here comes this flaming angelic being with a coal in his hand from the, the altar, and you You think you're just going to get toasted. But instead, that coal burns his lips and his sin is atoned for. And then he says, here I am, send me. 
So what's happened to Isaiah, that's a little picture of what needs to happen to all of God's people. Okay? And then chapter 7 to 12 unpacks the, the judgment that awaits the people of God here. But God explains it in a way where he shows that judgment isn't going to get the last word. The Lord has grace planned for his people, and so that section is a message of grace on the far side of judgment. Okay? And that section centers on this messianic king leader that's coming you know, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay? Second major block is 13 to 27. So we're on the tail end of that this morning. But the second section, big picture, 13 to 23, talks about the judgment of God on specific nations. All these nations that, that had afflicted, had, had um, you know, come against God's people and threatened them. God was going to eventually judge them. That was supposed to be an encouragement to God's people, and that God's going to deal with the threats. But also, they had a tendency to, to trust in everybody but God. They would try to find someone to trust in, and he's saying, don't trust in them. Their future is a dead end. Trust in me. And then now in chapters 24 to 27, judgment and salvation, it kind of goes, it's this climactic thing and, and it widens out, not just to specific nations, but to all the nations. It's all about the, the, in a sense, judgment and salvation for the whole world at the end of history. So this is right at the climax of that, where we are this morning. So look in your Bibles at Isaiah 27. If you're not there already, it's on, um, yeah, what page is it on? Thank you, Shirley. 587, there we go. Okay. So there's an outline in the bulletin, or you can follow along on the screen here with the slides. So first point, the Lord is a warrior. He will slay our enemy. So in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What? <laughs> well, this is really good news. In that day, the Lord's going to slay the dragon. Let's just unpack that a little bit. Hopefully that sounds like good news, but maybe not. There's obviously a lot of poetic imagery here, and, and so we need to understand some of these terms. I mean, Leviathan has kind of made it into our pop culture in, in, a, in a few places. But for those in the ancient Near East, it was a symbol of all the chaotic evil that has slithered and wreathed in our world since the fall. And all of that, obviously, was instigated by that ancient serpent, the devil, or Satan. Okay? So even the term for serpent there in verse 1 that's repeated twice, it's the same term that's, that's used in Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and that was the original temptation right before the fall. So it can certainly refer, if you're familiar with this term in the Bible, it can refer to a great creature, maybe like a great crocodile, but it often takes on these mythical proportions and is representative of great evil, which... You know, again, sometimes we have struggle because there's so much history and, and culture and language distance between us and some of these Old Testament passages. But you know what? 
The idiom that we have, where we say that certain things in our world eat people alive, not too far from this, okay? So Leviathan is, is big and scary. Satan is big and scary, but you know what? God is bigger and stronger. Look at the threefold description of the Lord's sword. It actually matches the threefold description of Leviathan. In other words, he's up for this match. Okay? So, in that day, the Lord, with his hard, great, strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon in the sea. Okay? So, in the context here, let's look back at immediate context. Back in 2616, this ends up being a really encouraging word and a call to wait on the Lord and trust in the Lord because he can fight your battles for you. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. Look at 26.16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who reads and cries out in her pangs when she's near giving to birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we wreathed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Okay, so again, imagine a nation that's threatened by other bigger nations that want to gobble you up. And sometimes in their fear, they didn't trust the Lord. They made an alliance with a, a wicked nation. And so we tried to work it out. We tried to make things happen. We tried to protect ourselves. And guess what happened? We pulled off nothing. We do the same thing. The threats come, and we try to scramble and make it happen, manipulate things. And you know what? In our own strength, we give birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance. So when we try to fight or work or strategize for peace or prosperity in our own wisdom or strength, we bear nothing but wind. So one commentator, Barry Webb, says, Isaiah's contemporaries could not put the world to rights any more than their ancestors could, nor were they expected to do so. All the Lord required was trustful waiting. To them, the wait seemed long. To him, it was only a little while. So too for us. So wait in faith, no compromise, no caving in to worldly pressure, because you know what? Yahweh's coming, and he's got a big sword, and those threats that you're afraid of, he can handle them. Okay? So, this verse starts with, in that day. So when is this going to happen? That's pretty important. And we've talked about this, if you've been here through the series in Isaiah, we've talked about the phrase, in that day, repeatedly, because it shows up repeatedly, but we need to repeat it because this needs to get drilled in. There is, in the fulfillment of these predictions and prophecies, there's an already but not yet sort of fulfillment. It's kind of like D-Day and V-E Day. So World War II, D-Day was decisive shift in the battle. It was all but over, but there was still a lot of fighting that was left until victory was finally declared. Okay? So in this life, it's similar. When is the in that day? When's God going to do this? You know, Satan is still a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So when is this going to happen? Well, Already on the cross, Jesus crushed Satan's head. He defanged the serpent. Remember Genesis 3.15? 
I'm going to put enmity. You know, God's talking to the serpent after um, Adam and Eve fall, and he comes down and, hey, Adam, did you do what I told you not to do? Oh, look at her. And then she says, look at the serpent. And so God curses the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring. You will strike his heel, and he will crush your head. So on the cross, that already began. The in that day has already begun. So listen to Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there was a decisive battle on the cross where Jesus crushed the serpent's head, defanged Satan. But the full and decisive end of Satan's havoc that he's wreaking is not until the end when Jesus comes back a second time. So already, but not yet. So you get a text like this, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace, this is to encourage the Roman Christians, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So it's not till the end when Jesus returns on the white horse, the Revelation 19 and 20, to set the world to rights. So it's already, but not yet. That's the in that day. It began, the day began on the cross, and the day ends when Jesus returns. So I read... Um, something that Russell Moore, uh, quoting Russell Moore a lot lately here, um, but this was in response to that children's book, and then they made a movie about where the wild things are. Anybody know that book? That's a good book. Um, I don't know anything about the movie, but the book is good. So here's what he said, and this is about children, but it applies to all of us. Too many of our Bible study curricula for children declaw the Bible excising all the snakes and dragons in wildness. We reduce the Bible to a set of ethical guidelines and a text on how gentle and kind Jesus is. The problem is our kids know there are monsters out there. God put that awareness in them. They're looking for a sheep-herding dragon slayer, the one who can put all the wild things under his feet. Anybody else looking for a sheep-herding dragon slayer? I am, and I've got some good news. We have one. On the cross, Jesus crushed Satan's head. He is furious that his days are short. He's thrashing around like a snake, even after its head is crushed, wreaking as much havoc as possible, but he is defanged, and our warrior, the Lord Jesus, will slay him along with all evil. So that's good news. Secondly, the Lord is a vintner. His vine will flourish. So look at chapter 27, the following verses there, 2 to 11. Again, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. Who's saying that? Who's speaking? Well, verse 3 makes it clear. I, the Lord, am its keeper every moment I water it. <laughs> the Lord wants us to sing about what we're about to hear. There's a song in his heart. I mean, he's excited here. The Lord is excited here, and he wants us to join him in his joy. 
That's pretty cool. Do you view God that way? He wants you to view him that way. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Now, you might be confused. It's okay. This is some confusing stuff. But guess what? This is why. This is so why wrestling through and doing some mining and digging in the Old Testament is worth it because there are diamonds here. Or to shift the the imagery, there's some sweet stuff here that's worth the effort to find. So here's what we need to do to, to find it. First, flip back to Isaiah 5. Okay, not all of you were here probably when we walked through this passage, but if you had been reading through the book or hearing it for the first time or whatever, you would have immediately thought of chapter 5. And there's a massive contrast here that's really encouraging. So look at Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. So think of what we just read, and now compare it with this. This is Isaiah speaking, and he basically, for the first four chapters, is saying, this is how bad it is, like I mentioned at the beginning. And then he picks up his guitar, and he starts singing. He's singing for the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard, God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me, he's now speaking for God, and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So, in other words, God did everything necessary to provide for this vine when he brought it out of Egypt and planted it in the promised land. But that vine rebelled. And now they're going to have to sleep in the bed that they've made. They're going to be judged. So that's really bad news. But fast forward the tape to chapter 27, and there's some seriously good news as far as what God has planned here. So there was no fruit in the first song, Lots of fruit here in the second song. No rain in the first song, lots of rain. I'm going to water it. I'm going to keep it night and day. Okay? Every moment I water it. First song, it was abandoned and the wall was broken down. Now God's going to guard it. He's their keeper. Old song, chapter 5, thorns and briars. Here, no thorns and briars. First song, The vine gets overrun here. The vine actually spreads out and fills the earth. 
Okay? So that was the state back in chapter 5 when, when Isaiah was preaching. But here is what God has planned, which means that the judgment that's coming you know, back then would be totally reversed. And ultimately, the Lord would have no wrath left. Do you see that in verse 4? So how's this going to happen? When did this happen? Well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen by atonement and cleansing. Look at verse 9. Therefore, by this, again, we're still doing the mining. This is really sweet, but we've got to do some mining to get there. <clears throat> Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Think about Isaiah in chapter 6 where he had his sins atoned for. Okay, well, by this, by what? Well, if you look back to verses 7 and 8, it talks about how God has not dealt with his people as their sins have deserved. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? In other words, he's really dealt decisively with their enemies, but he hasn't dealt with them the same way to the same degree. Verse 8, measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. So it was less severe than on Israel's enemies, but judgment was not the last word for them. It's this carefully measured out judgment in order to get their attention so that he can bless them, so that he can rescue them. So therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Okay, so just as God didn't deal with Isaiah according to his sins in chapter 6, Isaiah's guilt was atoned for. Now God is talking about how he's going to atone for all of his people's sins. And this is ultimately fulfilled, obviously, wonderfully, in Jesus. He is our atoning sacrifice. So what happens when we experience this atoning work? What's the intended, the intended effect? If, if, if you get reconciled with God, what is, what's he going to do? What's his purpose here? Well, verse 9 again, this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. Here's what's going to happen. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. What? Okay, these are ancient this is idolatry, okay? So when, when you get reconciled to God, God's purpose in that is to own all of your heart and all the competition he's going to crush and pulverize so that he can be your everything. So this section starts with news of what God is going to do, future flourishing and fruitfulness, and then it goes back, so that's verses 2 to 6, then it goes back to how he's dealt with his people in the, pa in the past and how he's dealing with them in the present, and then it goes back to the future. I'm setting up this fruitful future. But look at how sweet that future is. This is, this is now kind of the payoff here. Look at verses 2 to 4 again. This fierce love of our Lord. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I'm going to protect my vine, my people. Every moment I water it, I'm not going to neglect it. I'm going to water it. This is like Psalm 23. Make us lie down in green pastures. Lead us to quiet waters. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. How did that get fulfilled? He, spilled that, he spent that wrath. He poured it out not on us, but on Jesus. Jesus bore that wrath for us so that there would be nothing left but love. No more enemies. 
I'm going to keep it night and day. And then look at verse 4. This is so strange. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. (laughs) What? Well, here's the picture. Here's the point. All that warrior omnipotence, you know, the dragon slayer of verse 1, it's now directed for his people against the enemies of his people. Well, at some point, God's going to just completely deal with our enemies, and there are going to be any enemies left. So this is an image. This is kind of an, a way of, of speaking of his jealous love for his people, his zeal to prove his fierce love, to protect his people and bless his people. So this will maybe help make it clear. And I love it that God spoke this way. So guys, if you're married or have a girlfriend Have you ever wanted someone to mess with your girl, to just try, just so that you could show her how fiercely you love her and want to protect her from any threat? Come on, be honest. Okay, don't raise your hand. You're not going to raise it anyway. So, like, have you ever had that thought, you know, you're walking along and maybe somebody, there's a cat call or something, just try it, you know, just try it. That's what God's doing here. Is that cool? Listen to Barry Webb. At the end of the song that, that the Lord's at the end of the song, the Lord speaks like a lover whose love for his beloved is so intense that he almost wishes someone would attack her so that he might have the satisfaction of defending her. That means God really wants to prove his love to you. That's really good news, isn't it? Do you believe that? Is that sometimes hard to believe? Do you need to hear this? Do you need to hear Romans 8, like over and over and over again, for it to really get drilled in to really believe it? It's that fierce. It's that jealous. It's that passionate. That's really good news. But you know what's crazy? His love is so great that it even extends to the enemies of his people. This is, this is crazy. Look at the enemy love of the Lord, verse 5. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them and burn them up together. Or, or let those enemies lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. I'll say it again so that you really get the point. Let them make peace with me. God calls us to love our enemies, but you know what? He's not a hypocrite. He loves his enemies. Look at the grace he's extending to enemies. It's amazing. This is his character. This is really good news. And then this fruitfulness of the vine, the people of God described like this fruitful, flourishing vine. It's it's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Luke 13, the mustard seed. Remember that? Jesus said, what's the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So I don't know about you, but I mean, can often feel like, oftentimes feel like the church is in decline. It's gasping for breath. Individual Christians can feel that way. Individual churches can feel that way. But the true believers and true churches We are the indomitable vine. 
Have you ever seen those, like a picture, maybe some of you have actually been somewhere to see this, those crazy little flowers that are beautiful and delicate and fragile, and they can like press through ice in the tundra and come out? (laughs) That's kind of like this vine. We can look around, and it seems like there's so many threats, but you know what? We can flourish like this, not because of our power, but because of the power of the one who tends and protects us. So how did this unfold? How did it get fulfilled again? Already but not yet. The already is, you know what? Israel was supposed to be the vine. They failed. That's why they were torn down. But you know what? Jesus came. He was God's true vine, true Israel. He didn't fail. And if you abide in him, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in him, he will fill your life with fruit as he fills this world He is about the business of filling this world with fruit, John 15. So it can seem oftentimes like the world's winning, but when we feel that way, we are reading the wrong headlines. Again, Barry Webb writes so well, he says, the world will not invade and overrun the vineyard. The vineyard will overrun the world and fill it with its fruit. (laughs) Do you believe that headline? That's good news. That's what the world's coming to. Okay? So if, if we're really going to be filled with fruit, we must first be emptied of our idolatry. That's why it talks about the crushing of those you know, altar stones and the asherim. These were these you know, idolatrous paraphernalia or whatever. Okay? So sometimes that process of being purified can be painful, just like pruning a tree. is It hurts the tree, but it's in order to help and make it more fruitful. Same with us. So our Lord is a warrior, he will slay our enemies, and he's a vintner, and we, his vine, will flourish. And then finally, the Lord is a farmer, and he will glean and gather all of his people, verses 12 to 13. This is really the climax of the whole section, climax of chapters 24 to 27, which is the conclusion of, of this second major section, 13 to 27. Look at verse 12. Again, in that day, and again, think, this one actually refers mainly to the end, um, the end time when Jesus returns. But in that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, which those were actually the traditional promised land borders. (laughs) So in that day, the promised land is going to be filled like this. The Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel, Picture of the end times, sweet picture. One day the divine farmer, he's going to sift all people. He's going to glean and gather one by one his people, kind of like Jesus, sheep and the goats in in Matthew 25. So if you're his people, this is sweet. If you're rejecting Jesus or holding him out at arm's length, this this is scary. This is not good news. But where is this harvest headed? Look at verse 13. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So where is this harvest headed? Gleaned and gathered, the people of God gleaned and gathered to worship. What's that whole trumpet thing about? See it there in verse 13? A great trumpet will be blown. Well, first... It was the Jubilee trumpet, okay? So any of you know what Jubilee was about, Leviticus 25? Um, So back then they would have, you know, God instituted the Sabbath at the beginning of of time. Um, 
but also he built Sabbath rhythms into the lives of his people. So they were supposed to work six days and not on the Sabbath. Well, also, they would have Sabbaths for the land, and, and there would be a Sabbath year at the end of, so the seventh year of seven years. And then seven sevens is 49, right? So the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. And there were all kinds of wonderful things that happened then. If, if you had had to sell yourself, kind of become enslaved to someone because you couldn't afford to keep your land, and land was returned, so there's all this freedom all these freedom connotations that go along with this. Release of property, trust the Lord for provision, a lot of those kind of connotations. Well, basically what's being said here is that heaven is like a forever jubilee year. And you know what? That trumpet was blown on the Day of Atonement. So it refers to the jubilee and it refers to the Day of Atonement, which was a call to worship, and it's a, a heralded announcement of full atonement being available, which again is good news. So how appropriate for this to describe the end of time, which is really the beginning of the eternal party, but the end of time, this trumpet blown, freedom for all God's people, full final freedom, day of jubilee, trumpet calling us to worship. Worship is the point. No longer worshiping and serving created things, idols, Rejecting the true creator. Remember all the Asherim and those other altars crushed to pieces, but only the creator who's blessed forever. So no more idols. God is all in all. He saves us, cleanses us so that we worship him alone, which means we have everything. All all the competition never satisfies. It can't save. It can't deliver. It can't cause us to thrive and flourish. Only God can do that. So we will be perfectly free and provided for and full of joy at his right hand. Experience that, satisfied with pleasures evermore, like Psalm 16 says. So that's good news. That's where we're headed. So as we close here, I want you to notice something so that we understand how to apply a passage like this. Did you notice that there isn't a single command in that chapter? Hmm, so how in the world? I mean, it's hard enough to try to figure out what all these idioms and expressions and all this poetry and craziness, like, I, can we just go back to Romans? How do we apply this? Well, this is news. It's not advice. The gospel's good news, not good advice. So I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling And I stopped to think about this because I wanted to make sure that this was actually true. But when I'm struggling, it's rare that what I really need, and I struggle all the time, but I mean, really, it's rare that what I really need is, you know, some formula, you know, three new ways to win at work or five secrets to perfect parenting. You know what I need when I'm struggling? I need some news. I need a news flash to go through my eyes or ears and land with weight on my heart. I need to know that God is in control. I need to know Jesus saves, not just for the first time, though he does that, drawing people to himself and making them new, but rescuing me again and again and again from myself and my own stupid heart. 
and from the threats around me, whatever they may be. I need to know promises that are mine. And when that happens, even if my parenting challenges remain and my inbox is far from zero, everything is going to be all right. So think through the three sections of this chapter, okay? Our warrior champion is sovereign over and will someday slay our primal enemy. We all fear enemies and threats on a regular basis. We all desire peace and safety. This news ought to bring some serious hope and comfort. Okay, so think about it this way. This is to bring back the beginning of what we were talking about. Think about a World War II POW. I remember reading a long time ago, John Piper had this little illustration. He says, Christianity is like prisoners of war hearing by hidden radio that the allies have landed and rescue is only a matter of time. The guards wonder why all the rejoicing. So if that actually happened, you had a hidden radio and you heard what was going on and it was only a matter of time between D-Day and V-E Day, do you think you'd be able to endure that beating or that hunger a little bit better than you would a moment before when you thought maybe all hope is lost? So how about the past, present, and future good news of God as far as his power as our champion and his ability to deal with our enemies and our threats? Let Goliath be some news for us the cross, all of those nations that messed with Israel. It's all saying, it's all news. God is strong. He's sovereign. We can trust Him. Second section, we fear, what do we fear? Barrenness, loss of vitality. We so desire for our lives to count, to, have, to be fruitful, quality of life with meaning and significance. Well, have you ever been under threat like health threat. And then you hear, when the test results come back, you're going to be okay. Your health will return. You know what? Even if you're in pain the next two weeks, even if it's excruciating, you hear that news, so glad it's not this. Well, guess what, folks? I mean, though... On the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you see how that news can free us even from the fear of death? I'm going to be okay. I'm going to flourish. I'm going to live. Nobody can take that life from me. So your pain might still be present, but your outlook and your hope and your energy revives. So again, do we really believe the good news of the gospel? Do we need to hear the good news? Do we need news more than we need advice? And then third, the third point, this whole thing about the, um, what was the third point? (laughs) The farmer, thank you. Okay, being gathered, right? So what do we fear? We fear being left out. There's lots of little ways we fear being left out. Being on the outside, looking in. A lot of 
pain and struggle happens because of that emotionally. We desire to be included. What if you were having one of those days and then you receive news, you, you get home and you open your mailbox and you get this invitation oh, to like this awesome party. I got invited. Like your whole day could be exactly the same. The same crummy stuff happened that day, but you know what? Your whole day in disposition changes on a dime. Not because you finally found the four secret tips, you know, to living, but because you got some news that you were invited well, guess what? If you're in Christ, you're invited to the eternal party. You are in the most important in that you can possibly be in. The eternal year of Jubilee. Total freedom. Total fullness. So how about that for the good news of the gospel? Again, past what Jesus has done, what he is doing future news of the gospel. So again, most of the time, you know what? We need news, not advice. God doesn't really even give advice. Did you notice that? <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit in the Proverbs, but it's either news or command. So anyway, um, Christianity is not like, hey, try this, or I suggest that you do these things and your life will go better. Christianity is not do this and this and this, and you'll find health, wealth, peace, and happiness. It's not do this, this, and this, and then you'll get God on your side. It's God was against you, and he did news. Everything necessary to remove your greatest threats and to give you what you most need, to give you a savior so that you can be reconciled to him. It's not do, 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 advice, advice, advice. It's done. Good news. So when you're struggling this week, where are you going to go? What do you need? You need news. I need news about who God is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. That's the stuff that's going to change our life. So are you going to go get some news this week when you're struggling, when the threats come? I mean, just, it's really basic, you know. Read the Bible, okay, this application. Read the Bible this week, but I, I, it's not simplistic. It's you're struggling, I need I need to believe that news. So I mentioned news junkies at the beginning. So hopefully, you know, apparently there's only one in here, but maybe you've known one. So Bethel, let's be good news junkies. Let's pray. Lord, please give us ears to hear all the good, good news that you have spoken, that you want to continue to keep speaking into our ears and into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.